Well, if you've got a Bible, take it and uh, turn back to the text that was just read to us. Uh, as we continue our study in Ephesians, uh, we deal with Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. And I must tell you uh, that this, <laughs> my biggest fear with this text is because it mentions the word slaves and masters, you are going to tune out and not hear what it has to say. Um, in earlier versions of the sermon, I had 25 minutes of preaching about what the text doesn't mean and about three and a half minutes of what it did mean. One of my early versions of it had 27 minutes of what it didn't mean. And then the last three minutes, I simply said, may God help you apply the text by the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about five different reasons why you may not be able to hear this text well. And I'm going to try to remove these obstacles. I'm under no illusion that I'm going to remove them from, for all of you, but I'm going to try my best so that we can look at this important text. Here's the first obstacle. I think it would be very easy for some of us, particularly because of the context that we live in, in America, given our history of slavery, is to forget that what Paul is addressing here is first century Roman socioeconomic situation. American slavery is going to happen 15 to 16 centuries later, okay? So Paul is not addressing the particularities of American slavery, and that's very important to realize. It's first century. He's talking to uh, believers in Ephesus who are part of the Roman Empire in the first century. And yes, there was a socioeconomic system and it had masters and it had slaves, but it was, it was a little bit different. And let me just count a couple of ways it was different. It was not race-based per se. It was not uh, racialized and was not ethnicity-wise. In other words, if you went down the streets of Ephesus, you might not be able to tell who was a slave and who was not. The way you could have told who was a slave or not if you were walking down the streets of Charleston, South Carolina in 1787. It's also true that in the first century uh, Roman socioeconomic situation, many uh, people who had been categorized as slaves had very, very prominent jobs. In other words, slavery was not an issue of this particular ethnicity or this particular race. We're going to enslave all of you, and we don't think that you're, you're, you're intellectually competent enough to do other jobs, and so you're going to do menial jobs. In the Roman system, slaves often had very significant what we would consider professional jobs today, which makes it different. It's also easier in, in the Roman system, far more percentage, it appears, from the, the, the language of, 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 of that history, is that being free, being able to get out of slavery, was easier and happened regularly. And there was a sense in which, while uh, there certainly were injustices in this particular socioeconomic system, that the personhood of the person in slavery was kept more intact than what we had in our experience here. And so, in fact, uh, people could move up and some people could move down into slavery or move up out of slavery um, and, and, and purchase their freedom and become a full part of Roman society and even become citizens in ways that were not available 
in our slave situation in North America. Having said all that, this was not nirvana in the first century. This was a broken socioeconomic system in many, many ways. There was racism, maybe not been the basis of masters and slaves, but it was still massive uh, opportunities for abuse and injustices. And that's what Paul is writing into. But remember, he's writing for the first century, not for our context specifically. That's important to keep in mind. The second obstacle is, I think you might forget about the narrowness of Paul's focus. Paul is writing specifically to those who were, would, be, would have been considered slaves, who, who were on the sort of the lower end of the, of the economic strata. And he's writing to masters who had a little bit more power in the, in the economic strata. And he's giving specific instructions for how believing slaves on the low end, and believing masters on the higher end were to take the gospel into this broken socioeconomic system and live out the gospel for the sake and the reputation of Christ. Paul's concern here is not to upend or, or, or to define or to categorize or to analyze the socioeconomic conditions and all of the injustice. That's not his purpose. He's basically telling us as believers, as we enter a broken socioeconomic system, if, you're, if you have less power, you've got to live like this. If you have more power, you need to live like this. Thirdly, it would be easy to forget, I think, is that Paul has already dealt with the main foundational problem that's at the root of all injustice, which is sin, Okay. Let's not forget this. But back in Ephesians 2, Paul said that the reason the world is broken is because every single human being is trapped by sin. We're dead, spiritually unable to relate to God and trapped by the world, the, our own flesh, and, and, and Satan himself. And because of each individual person is broken, every system that we create is broken. Paul has already really described that the only way the universe gets put back together is if person by person <laughs> comes to receive the grace of God, gets back into relationship with God, begins to live out of their new identity and live in a fundamentally different way, joined with other believers in the church. That's how the world gets back on track. That's how the world is righted. I think we can easily forget that in looking at this text. And I've already kind of said this, but this is the fourth obstacle, is that we forget that Paul's, as Paul is describing throughout Ephesians, he's describing how does this broken world get reunified under the lordship of Christ. Ephesians 1.10. And he's saying that the church of Jesus Christ, believers in Jesus Christ, who've been brought back into right relationship with God through the community of faith, that we are at ground zero of this great redemption project that God is involved in. Which means, it, which means is that in Paul, in Ephesians, he is describing how God, through Jesus Christ, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through bringing the people of God together in Christ, how we are going to be part of the effort to reunify the world under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And one day he will bring that completely to fruition, which means God is deeply concerned about all injustice as he's in the process of, of rectifying all of those injustices in Christ. 
It is a little frustrating. I know it is frustrating from church history to see how some Christians took Ephesians 6 and said that this sanctioned injustice. And of course, those who are a little more hostile to the faith look at a text like Ephesians 6 and say, well, they have, of course, Christianity is not true. Look at this. And I say, no, not so fast. What God has been describing through, Paul has been describing through Ephesians, God's plan to fix every unjust situation, to, to bring back every individual and those structures. He's doing it through the church. He's doing it through, through believers. He's not sanctioning injustice, but he's helping us to know how we ought to live in our context so that we can be part of God's redemptive plan to see things reunited under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The last thing I want to remind us about is I think get so critical of things. Uh, I just want to say humbly, uh, and again, I'm very grateful that I live in this country. Uh, There's much to be grateful for, but there are many problems. We need to remember that our own socioeconomic system in this country today is broken. Do you not see that? We're so quick to judge other Christians and other eras or other situations. We have a system that doesn't always work well for everyone. Reminded what George Carlin said, great philosopher, and he's a comedian, actually. He said, it's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. I can't tell you how many young adults I have spoken to here in in Princeton area, but in other contexts who will tell you after doing what everybody told them to do, going to college and incurring $120,000 worth of debt because of their family's finances were limited. And now they get out of college with $120,000 of debt, and now they have a job that pays $37,500 plus insurance. And now they're thinking about, well, I'd like to get married one day, and I'd like to move out of my parents' basement, but I can't. Now, I'm not going to call that slavery, but there's a sort of servitude there. So lest we... Be so arrogant of where we are today. I think we need to see that what Paul is suggesting throughout the book of Ephesians and what he's suggesting in these verses. If we as God's people would go out into the workplace, some of us have less power. So we'll look at the passage for slaves. But it's interesting. (laughs) Paul says that that the masters need to do the same thing that slaves are commanded to do. We'll see that in a minute. But if you have a little bit more power in the economic situation, Paul is going to challenge us to take our identity in Christ, to take it into the marketplace, to live for Christ, to, to demonstrate the reality of the gospel in our workplaces so that the reputation of Christ is deepened and extended, of course, but also so that as we live differently as those who have been reunited under the lordship of Christ, we could be part of seeing the socioeconomic situation of our office, our workplace, the academic institution that we work in to see that transformed and put back a little bit more under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is a transformative and subversive call to us to be part of God's redemptive plan to bring healing to it even now 
even as we await the fullness of that reconciliation project when Christ comes again. Now, I'd love to know on YouTube how many people are still listening to this. Hope a few of you are still there. Nobody's left here yet, only because it's a little embarrassing to walk out before the introduction's over. Having said all that, I want us to take a good look at what God, I believe God is calling us to do today to be part of this reconciliation effort as God's people, the church, in the workplace to see the reputation of Jesus Christ deepened and extended. I'm going to read the text one more time. I know we've already read it once, but I'm going to read it again and then we'll dive in here. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same thing to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. It's interesting that the commands given to those on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder, so to speak, Paul would have called them slaves in the first century context, and that masters in the first century context, which would sort of correspond to those who have a little bit more power and authority, in the socioeconomic context we find ourselves today is that the same commands apply to both. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Now, you know, masters, got to, they've got a little more information there, but the same commands given to those with less power and less authority are the same commands to the master. What you see here is Paul is already, because of the gospel, because of Christ, and he's addressing believers, okay, in this context, believers who had a little bit more power, believers who had a little less power. In some sense, the gospel has put them all on the same plane. Same thing I'm going to tell to those with less power is the same thing I'm going to tell to those who have a little bit more power. The gospel has already united people together in the church in a fundamentally different way. The church by itself, in some sense, just the existence of the Christian church, this new humanity that Paul talks about, undermines all of the injustice, the division, the racism that infects our world. And if you read any kind of history, um, I mean, this wasn't true everywhere, but this is why when people in our country who were enslaved worshipped together, they were viewed as a threat to the whole economic situation going on because the church was a threat because it's the church through the gospel, through Christ, that undermines all of these injustice, all of these ra- racism and all of the other Uh, destructive patterns of every socioeconomic system that's in play ever in history and today. So with that in mind, I want to call those of you who have a little less power and those of you who have a little bit more power, I'm going to call you to two specific actions. I'm going to fill this out a little bit, but two very specific actions that you need to take in, in terms of your work. The first is this. What this text is commanding the managers and the workers today is commanding you to connect your work 
to Jesus Christ. This is an absolutely critical principle. This is what Paul is driving at. You have to connect what you do Monday through Friday, whatever that is. Now, some of you, you know, if you're under 18, your parents haven't put you to work yet. That idea will come to them soon, okay? When they calculate how expensive you are. Anyway, but your, your work is to go to school and do other things around the house. Others of you are not necessarily earning a paycheck, but you're working very hard. Maybe you're the mom or the dad staying home with the kids, but this is your work. But you've got to connect your work, what you do Monday through Friday, so to speak, to Christ himself. And this is a real problem. I think for a lot of people, work is just about drawing a paycheck. Work is simply about doing what I need to do to stay viable here or so, so that I, 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 you know, I, I can make a living, so I can do the other things I want to do. The other problem with work, particularly in Princeton area, is that work is everything to you. Your identity is wrapped up in work. You're trying to get to what only Christ can do for you in what the gospel says he does for you. You're trying to squeeze that out of your work. That won't work either. You have to orient your nine to five work to Jesus. Let's look at some of the different ways that, uh, that, that Paul calls us to. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. What's interesting here is what Paul is going to say is your real boss, your ultimate boss in the workplace, whether you're a manager or a worker, is Jesus Christ. You're working for Jesus. You're not just working for your earthly uh, boss. You're working for Jesus. It's not just about your company. It's not just about doing what your earthly boss wants. Jesus Christ is fundamentally your authority and you should act accordingly. That's a difficult thing to do, I think, sometimes for some of you. You know, if you've been working a long time, you kind of do your thing. Do you have a real connection that when you walk into that office, you are working for Jesus and you are taking direction ultimately from him and nobody else? Yeah, you've got an earthly boss. You need to obey him, right? Again, disobedience here is not servile submission. No, because you can't be servile submission because your ultimate boss is Jesus. So if your earthly boss says, tells you to cut corners, if your earthly boss tells you to do something that's not good for the client or dishonest, if there's harassment going on in your workplace, you don't sit there and say, well, I got to submit to my boss. No, you submit to Christ. He's your boss. And notice what Paul does with this, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord, not to man. Now I would say there's sort of two different kinds of work problems you can fall into. One issue is some people are only working for their earthly boss. And therefore, when the boss is concerned about something, when management is concerned about something, when management shows up, they're all in. But when management leaves, if they can get away with it, they're doing something else. You probably have worked with people like this. You may have acted like this. I don't have a lot of experience in the secular world, but I did work at Chick-fil-A. I was a manager. I had a lot of 15 and 16-year-olds working. Imagine that, a company that makes money on 15-year-olds. That's a risky business. I had some students who were great. I gave them instruction. They would go do it. I didn't have to monitor them. I had other students. I felt like I had to babysit them because they were not working for Jesus. I mean, they might not even believe us. They had no idea that Christ was their boss. I was the boss, and I had to be there to hold their hand, or they went out of control. 
never forget the night where I had to do something out in the dining room only to come back into the kitchen to find out that the kitchen of where I was working had become a tattoo parlor. That a waffle fry, right out of the fryer, had been applied to another worker. And he had a beautiful tattoo of what a waffle fry was. You're laughing? Not good. That was a worker who, Jesus Christ wasn't their boss. My question for you, do you have that sense of divine calling when you go to work? When you get up to morning, get your cup of coffee and go to your dining room with your laptop. Or pre-COVID, when you got in a car and went to work, do you have a sense of, I'm on mission here and Jesus is my boss. I want to do what he does. Do you have a sense in which every client I talk to, every guest that comes in, every customer that comes in, every one of my colleagues I interact with, and how I interact with my bosses themselves, I am going to do and be and act like Jesus to those individuals. Of course, the other part of this text is, is, is not as eye service, it's not, not as, as you know, pleasing uh, to, to man. Uh, it, it's, it's doing the will of God. It's, it's having this vertical focus. Jesus is, is, is helping me. Jesus is guiding me. I'm, I'm taking directions from him. It also means not simply that you slough off when boss is not around, but it also means if you're working for Jesus and something's wrong in the workplace, you address it. Shocking to me. Over the years, the many stories I've heard about dysfunctional workplaces where things are out of control and nobody, none of the workers, take any action to address what is going on that is seriously flawed and deeply disturbing. If you're working for Jesus, you can't be silent. If you're working for Jesus, you have to speak up. If you're working to Jesus, you take the appropriate actions when something is amiss, when other people are being mistreated, when other people are being harassed, when the language that's used in the office is not appropriate. You don't just go along with the crowd. You've got a different boss. You've got Jesus. I think there's another aspect of this is if you really believe that Jesus was the one who was really directing your work, you would realize that whatever job God has given you at present, that job has inherent dignity and significance. I think it's easy for us in America. We tend to view things that, hey, hey, if it pays more money, then it must be a better job. It must be more important. But the reality is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, whatever the work that God has asked you to do, he's your boss. And therefore, because he's your boss, he's directing you. And when you do that work, as insignificant as you may think about it, it's not insignificant. It's exactly what God wants to do because God wants the world to be ordered under his authority. I've told this story before. I'll keep telling it probably. But one of the most life-transforming things that happened to me when I was in my 40s, after working in ministry for almost 20 years and ended up in Chick-fil-A and figuring out that when I mopped the floor at 10.15 at night, I was doing the work of Jesus. 
that I was taking this part of the world, this little, you know, 300 square foot, you know, in the dining room of this, this restaurant. I was doing something that God was delighted in and wanted me to do. And it was important and it was significant. And how I did it and what I did it and the purpose for which I was doing it all had to be centered in Christ. And when I had my eyes on Christ, I had dignity and worth. I realized I'm not just mopping the floor. I'm doing the work of Jesus. I'm doing the work of God. My question for you is, what would happen to your workplace? Uh, Your Zoom calls at your workplace these days. If every single one of us walked out of here and tomorrow morning we went to whatever it was we did, And we had a sense that Jesus was calling us to this work. Jesus was the one ultimately we were working for. Jesus sees us, how we conduct ourselves, living out of the gospel, treating everyone with dignity and respect the way Jesus would do, and doing this work for him, realizing that everything I do, even the the mundane parts of my, my job and my job description that I have to do are not insignificant to Jesus and did, did things that way. What would, what would change in your workplace? What might it look like? If you've got a little bit more authority in your workplace, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you manage some folks, Maybe you own your own business, right? Notice how, uh, how you're supposed to connect to, to Jesus. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Ooh, you think about that if you're in leadership. God is watching you. God sees how you treat people. God has no partiality. God wants you to act to to the workers that are under you in the same way that they're supposed to work with you, doing good, being people who are pleasing God, orienting yourself around Christ. Are you leading your organization or the little bit of the world that you have some authority in? Are you leading like Jesus? Do you have a deep sense that that you're accountable to to this God because this is work you're doing for him? That he's the master? Are you threatening people with your words, your angry tones, and trying to manage people by fiat and by fear? And guys, let me tell you that the, the, the reputation of Christ is at stake. I, 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 I wish this wasn't true, but I've had a half a dozen times I've had people come to various churches, not just Stonehill, but other churches I've been a part of. And the people who came to the church were being managed by people who came to my church. And when they found out that their manager was going to the church, they didn't want to come to church anymore. Not because they were worried their manager was going to give them work during the worship service. That wasn't the problem. In all of these half a dozen situations, the person said, if that is a Christian, it's the worst boss I've ever had. And he's a member in good standing in your church. I don't want any part of your church. Think about that. 
We need to connect Christ to our work. We need to see that what we do is, is, is that Christ is in charge and that Christ gives dignity to all of our work. As menial as you might think it is, it is not. And until you get to the point where you can mop a floor at 1015 and realize you're doing the very work of Jesus, you're going to have a hard time living out the gospel, living out your identity in the workplace in the manner that Paul is describing here. The second thing we all need to do, whether you're the lower end of things or whether you've got a little more authority, and that is this. You need to connect your work to eternity. Let's go back into the text. Verse 8 says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. There's a reward for taking Christ into the workplace. There's a reward for coming in and serving people as you're serving Christ. There's a reward for doing good in the workplace. There's a reward for, for, for not just trying to please your human uh, bosses and, and, and seeing Christ as the ultimate source of, 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 of the authority in your workplace. There's, there's, there's something to be said for when we do this kind of work, whether we have less power or we have more power, when we faithfully take the gospel into our workplaces, God says... I will repay you. I'm going to reward you. Now, I, I think some of that reward could be in this life, right? There's a joy in serving Christ, of course. But I think, there's, I think there's something about looking to the forward as well. We have this inheritance that awaits us. That's been given to us by grace. But it does seem that God is going to re- provide recompense for those who faithfully serve Christ in the workplace in the manner he's been describing. And it makes sense, right? Because if Christ is your boss, he's not only thinking about this life. He's got this next life that he's preparing for us. This next life where we will be with him with all of the injustices of everything broken down. He has us moving towards this place. And why would he not, for masters and and slaves in his context, for, for, for managers and workers in our context, why would he not also reward us for the faithfulness we work? He would have to do that because he's a good boss. And maybe that reward is not necessarily in, in this life, but it certainly will be in the next life. And of course, Jesus says all kinds of things about this. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. You think about this. For some of you, this is very, very crucial for how you think about this. You may work in a very dysfunctional organization, okay? Well, all of you do. You all do, but some of it's more dysfunctional than others, right? You may be passed over for raises. You may be passed over for promotions. You may not be acknowledged for the work that you've done. Your boss may steal the stuff that you've done and then present it to his managers as if he thought about it or she thought about it. And, and now, you're, now you don't get rewarded. You don't get acknowledged. You, 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 lots of places in the socioeconomic structure we have today don't always reward people for their work. But if you're working for Jesus Christ, whether your earthly boss sees what you do and does that and whether you're the people that you manage see how well you're treating them and stuff you have an ultimate master named Jesus Christ and he will make sure that your faithful service to, to him will be will be acknowledged one day and this is what keeps you going this is what moves you forward 
for some of you, this is a huge component of how you can enter into the workplace with this eternal dimension in view that allows you to continue to be faithful even when things aren't so great at work. So here's my appeal for all of us. Paul has tasked us, his church, as those who have been rescued from the slavery of sin, which is the fundamental problem, underlying all enslaving injustice around the world. He's rescued us by grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We now have the power to, to, to say no to sin because... Sin no longer has de facto power of us. He's, he's promised us this amazing inheritance one day that's all by grace. And he's placed us in the body of Christ so that together we and in our interactions together and as we share the gospel and as we live out the gospel displays the beauty and glory of God so that others would come and find hope and respite and forgiveness in Jesus Christ so that the world begins to be put back together. But he also says to us, well, when you leave this gathered assembly, whether you're at home or here, when you leave and you go into the workplace, I have important work for you to do. You need to take that identity, take who you are in Christ, bring it right into the workplace and and serve the people around you the same way Jesus would serve those around you. And whether you have more power or less power, you have an opportunity to live out the gospel, to live in such a way that demonstrates the beauty and glory of Christ. And in doing that, You begin to be part of God's plan to see the world bit by bit put together in Christ and then one day it's going to happen. I had a friend of mine when I was in seminary challenged me. I was mowing lawns at the time. Very, very important work. You know, it felt menial to me a little bit. So I'm going to seminary to be a pastor, but I'm mowing lawns by day. Uh, um, you know, it's difficult. Um, uh, I was laughing. I was laughing. Leslie probably grew up near where I was. Maybe I mowed your lawn back then. I don't know. Um, um, it was a difficult proposition at times, right? It's hot. It's Texas burning up 100 degrees by 8 o'clock in the morning, practically. Hard work. And I was uh, complaining to a friend about my lot in life. And he just said something to the fact, you need to read Psalm 127 about depending upon God in your work. You can't, laborers can't build a house and they can't build a city without God and you labor in vain. And what began to happen to me over time is I began to spend about 30 minutes. I, mean, I laughed, but it's, it was the right thing to do. I spent 30 minutes before I went out and mowed lawns and prayed for me mowing lawns. Prayed that our equipment would start. Prayed that I would be nice to the landlords who didn't always like what we did or de- demanding or held us up, etc. Blah, blah, blah. But I prayed, I prayed, I thought about it. And I realized I'm not just mowing lawns to make a little bit of money so I can eat during seminary. I am doing the work that God delights in. And until you get to that 
place, and it's not easy. Until you connect your work to Christ himself and until you connect your work to eternity, we're not going to be able to do the good work that God has for us in our present context. Because what God is doing through the church is to bring the world back under his authority. And what he needs are workers and, 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 and bosses to do this together before God as being an agent for the transformation of the world. So let me pray for those of you who are workers and those of you who are bosses. And then we'll close. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I, I want to particularly pray for those um, bosses or workers, you could be either one, who struggle with connecting their work to Christ. I pray that they would see that ultimately we are our boss, so to speak, our Lord, our Savior is Jesus Christ. He's the one who directs us, Lord. But I pray that we would see that what we do Monday through Friday is not disconnected from God's purposes. It's not disconnected from the plan of God to redeem the world. It's not disconnected from Christ. And while our workplaces may be very secular in, in various ways, we can bring our identity in Christ and work in a fundamentally different way with a different boss because of what you have done for us in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to be the kind of workers who don't simply work hard when management's around or only work about what management does. We would go beyond the call of duty, so to speak, and do the work that Christ is directing us to do. That we would please Christ in all of our interactions with colleagues, co-workers, guests, customers, clients, bosses, those we manage. I pray that we would have, render service with a good will as to the Lord. I pray that we would not sacrifice integrity for, for the, 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 the company or the, 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 the group that we work in, Lord. That we would speak out as Christ would want us to when there are injustices and things that need to be addressed, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would also give us an eternal perspective on our work, Lord. Because you are our boss, you will make sure that we are rewarded, whether we're rewarded in this life or not completely or effectively or, 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 or you know, honestly or, or appropriately, Lord. You will provide recompense for service done for you because you see what we do and you delight in what we do. And I pray that we would do our part through the gospel to demonstrate the reality that it is the gospel, it is the shed blood of Jesus Christ that's ground zero of bringing the world back under the authority of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we as the body of Christ, when we leave this place today, when we, 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 we move into the, the workplace, the socioeconomic situation we find ourselves in, Lord, I pray that we would live in such a way that the gospel of Jesus Christ would penetrate the organizations that we work with. And Lord, in most cases, it's not, we're not going to be necessarily saying words. We're not, we're not going to be preaching at, at lunchtime, per se. We, we're going to be on the clock working and, 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 and with integrity. But the way we conduct ourselves, I pray that you would use us to undermine all of the injustices and some of the broken pieces of this world could get put aright because of how we conduct ourselves 
in the socioeconomic situation we're in. Help us by your grace to do that work in Jesus' name. Amen.